This is Guns and Butter. Is it possible for the UN to have a progressive role? Now, there is the aspiration that the United Nations represents that the people of the world could, in common cause in a general assembly, come and defend their interests and protect. But that's not the way the UN functions. Just to look at the experience of the UN forces in Haiti or in the Korean War, that was carried out under UN flag. But I think the role that is so familiar to everyone here is in Iraq. The 1991 bombing, every water purification, sanitation, sewage, and food processing plant in the country was targeted. The sanctions that took place for 13 years that killed a million and a half people were carried out by the United Nations. And the UN humanitarian organizations went in to measure the number who died from UN-imposed sanctions. So this is the reality. It sounds very good to say, well, the UN should come in and help the people of Sudan. And isn't that better than the US? But actually, it is the same thing. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, part two. Five different perspectives on the ongoing crisis in the Darfur region explore the many ethical and political questions behind popular calls for humanitarian intervention and regime change in Sudan. The speakers are co-director of the International Action Center, Sarah Flounders, professor of anthropology, Dr. Elliot Fratkin, independent investigative journalist, Keith Harmon Snow, writer and researcher on war crimes, Dimitri Oram, and Associate Professor of Anthropology, Enoch Page. They conclude with a panel discussion. This open discussion on the crisis in Darfur took place on July 6, 2006, at Smith College in Massachusetts. Part two begins with Dimitri Oram. I'm going to talk about the genocide label and how it's being used to justify intervention into the affairs of less powerful countries by the great powers. The theme of genocide became a big one in the 1990s after the Cold War, and uh, one of the people who helped promote it, as uh, Keith said, it's become a big thing since then, is Samantha Power. The whole idea is that while genocide unfolded in Bosnia and Rwanda, the United States and the international community stood by and they didn't do anything. While this may sound pretty damning, it takes attention away from a much grimmer reality, which is that the U.S. is itself deeply involved and responsible for the conflicts I just mentioned, because of its active intervention. The U.S. took the lead role, one of the lead roles in breaking up Yugoslavia and also took the lead role in recognizing Bosnia. In fact, it was U.S. intervention that brought Bosnia into a full-scale civil war. In April of 1992, the Bosnia's Muslims, Serbs and Croats, had actually worked out under EU auspices. They'd signed an agreement, the Lisbon Accords, for power sharing and it cantonized Bosnia. And then U.S. Ambassador to Yugoslavia, Warren Zimmerman, came. He met with the Bosnian Muslim leader, Ali Izabit Govic, and he encouraged him to renege on the agreement. He said, well, if you don't like it, you don't have to sign it because Izabit Govic wasn't too happy with it. So Izabit Govic withdrew his signature and Bosnia plunged into full-scale war. After this, Warren Zimmerman went on to uh, serve on one of the boards of Human Rights Watch up until his death in 2004. 
And uh, yeah, despite all the talk about a lack of intervention, in fact, throughout the war, the U.S. followed a policy that favored the Bosnian Muslim-dominated government in Sarajevo. They gave open support diplomatically and military support covertly. They dropped uh, arms. That's in a Dutch report on Srebrenica. And the U.S. also played a very substantial role in Operation Storm, in which Croatian forces drove over 200,000 Serbs from the Krajina region of Croatia, where they lived for hundreds of years. Military Professional Resources International trained Croatian forces who undertook the attack equipped with U.S. weaponry while U.S. NATO planes bombed Serbian radar and anti-aircraft batteries, and the U.S. representatives blocked the U.N. Security Council resolution condemning the invasion. Uh, Richard Holbrook was involved with that, and his wife also serves on one of the Human Rights Watch boards now. He bragged about it quite openly in his book, To End a War. A report from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which is in fact very much a NATO institution, shows that came out a couple of years ago. It hasn't been reported on much in the press. It shows that about half of the dead were soldiers and that each group's share of the death toll was roughly proportioned to its share of the population. And about 100,000 was the total figure, not the 200,000, 250,000 we're seeing usually in the press. And this is interesting because the IC2A is, uh, is not a fair and impartial tribunal. It has deep ties to the NATO powers and it played a key role in promoting the tale of Serbian aggression. It proved its loyalty by indicting the Yugoslav president during NATO's bombing campaign and refusing to even investigate NATO war crimes. In fact, this is another example of how the label of genocide is used in order to justify crimes and to justify what was deemed at Nuremberg the supreme crime, which is crimes against the peace, planning of an aggressive war. There's much more to say about that, but I'm going to move past it. Just to say that... uh, Bosnia was not a case of genocide, and very much the U.S. was involved in that. In Rwanda, the Tutsi-dominated Rwandese Patriotic Front were backed by the U.S. and Great Britain. They invaded Rwanda from Uganda in October of 1990. And this blatant violation of international law was never condemned by the international community. The invasion and the fighting combined with devastating economic structural reforms and a new multi-party political system led to a very desperate situation for Rwanda, which is one of the most crowded countries in the world And then the uh, Arusha Accords, which were brokered by the international community, gave very disproportionate power to the the RPF, which is an invading army. The final spark came when the plane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi was shot down. It's pretty much a virtual certainty that RPF agents did it. They had everything to gain. They would not have won in the upcoming multi-party elections. They were not popular. And in fact, in the case of Rwanda, contrary to the official story of the RPF, didn't stop any genocide, and the international community didn't just stand by. It was that the U.S. and Great Britain specifically and deliberately pushed for the withdrawal of U.N. troops from Rwanda, not because they were afraid for the lives of Western soldiers or they didn't want to risk American lives. They wanted the RPF to take power in Rwanda, and they wanted the U.N. out of the way so they could do that. And the RPF itself refused to cooperate with a U.N. mission as of at least April 30th, I have a copy of the document they sent to the UN where they refused to, uh, they said they're categorically opposed to a UN intervention force. Yeah, so then they figured that way they could take power, they could move, and it was going to be very bloody because it was a minority fighting against a majority. So the truth is that hundreds of thousands of Rwandese were killed. It's not in doubt at all, although the estimates of the number vary quite a bit. Contrary to the standard story, a large number of them were Hutu and a large number of them were killed by the RPF. According to a study by the Genodynamics Project in Maryland, a majority of the victims may have been Hutu and most of the victims were killed for political, economic, and personal reasons, not because of their ethnicity. 
This isn't an apology for violence or killing of any kind, but it does complicate the picture and it shows that the genocide label is being used. It's being used to justify minority rule in Rwanda. It's been used to justify the invasion of Congo from Rwanda. It's been used to obscure the U.S. role in what's going on. And that's the same thing and in Darfur now, too. It's a political thing. There was a long campaign that the U.S. has, has undertaken in Sudan, as has been elaborated on or mentioned by the previous three speakers, that the U.S. was definitely involved in funding the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. Earlier, slavery was mentioned, and there were a lot of reports of slavery in the U.S. press. This was proven to be a scam. There's a CBS 60 Minutes that uh, shows how this is not correct, and a number of articles have shown that. This was to use to funnel money for the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, that this was taken, and they staged these ideas of slave redemption, that they would round up local villagers and people and have them pose as slaves, and they would take money from these various Christian groups, including Christian Solidarity International was a big one. Again, I think the problem is with all these that it's the active U.S. intervention. It's not the lack of an intervention. The United States was and still is very involved in Sudan, American mercenary groups are there, private military contractors. DynCorp has a contract to assist the African Union mission, uh, allegedly with logistics and housing. What are they doing there? Uh, why is the contract, of course, is, it's with a private company, so it's shrouded in secrecy. We don't know exactly what they're doing there. And it's very important to ask these questions, like why are private military contractors there? Pacific Architects and Engineering, it's headed up by one of the former um, heads of covert operations during the Gulf War. Who's giving us the information about what's going on in Sudan? Who are the people that uh, the media cites, the tellers of the tale? Well, we have the International Crisis Group. John Prendergast works for them. He was the National Security Chief, Head of Affairs for Africa during the 1990s under the Clinton administration when the U.S. was deliberately pushing a policy of regime change and also when they launched their uh, illegal attack on the pharmaceutical plant in Sudan in total violation of international law. So now he gets to report on what's going on, and he gets to rewrite the role. And we, I mean, he never says anything about U.S., of course, supporting with weapons or anything like that, opposition, SPLA, anything like that. Human Rights Watch, I mentioned before, Warren Zimmerman, Cotty Martin, Richard Holbrook's wife, worked there. We have also Mark Galesco of Human Rights Watch. He worked for the Pentagon for seven years. Uh, he came up with targeting for thousands of aim points on hundreds of targets for the bombing of Iraq and Yugoslavia. War is undertaken in complete violation of international law. You have Jamera Rone. She has been quite hostile to the Sudanese government, but she also gave a eulogy for one of the lead SPLA fighters in 2001. Alison DeForge, who worked for the U.S. State Department, maintains close ties with the Pentagon. Vincent Mai of Human Rights Watch. He's also on the board of the International Rescue Committee. And Henry Kissinger's on that advisory board, too. It goes back a long way, and it has deep ties to Bechtel and the intelligence community. Uh, I'll go back to the international crisis group again. Wesley Clark, who headed the NATO bombing, he's an international crisis group member too, and he was actually fired, he, well, he was dismissed when he almost started a war with Russia. He was demanding confrontation with Russian forces over the Pristina airport in Kosovo. Morten Abramowitz, Samantha Power's old boss, he funded... He helped get weapons to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during the 1980s. Uh, old State Department hand, he was also one of the senior advisors to the KLA delegation at the Rambouille Ultimatum. That's when, prior to the bombing of Kosovo, and this is why the bombing really happened, the U.S. government essentially put in demand 
calling for the virtual occupation of all of Yugoslavia and the leadership of Yugoslavia had to refuse that just because no country would sign. You can ask anybody, I mean, that knows about this. People, even very hostile, will have to admit that. There was no way a sovereign country could sign that. So we're looking here at what's going on in Sudan, and we're looking here at the U.S. role in it. And we're not hearing the real story from anybody. Janjaweed have attacked police stations as well. They're not all controlled by the government. And if we have private military contractors in there, if you have U.S. covert operations around in Africa and you have these massive military installations, because we never hear much about Africa, really, except in the way the media wants you to hear it. So what are we not being told? What is it that's really going on? It's a very broad label, Janjaweed, like Arabs on horseback. I mean, is that really who's doing all the killing? Rebels have hijacked humanitarian aid. They've killed humanitarian aid workers, and they fought with each other. They fought against the government. They've fought against some of the tribes and you have all the neighboring countries involved. So I say that very first we have to look and see what's happening as long as the debate is conducted in false and misleading terms designed to cover up the actions of the powerful. There will be no true improvement and no peace. If you want a real look at the tragedies of U.S. foreign policy, what's really going on, not this nonsense about a a failure to intervene, but about the U.S. active interventions, Uh, around the world from after the Second World War, I would recommend a book by William Blum called Killing Hope. If you want to look at, oh, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum as well was a big player in in publicizing all this stuff. Well, have they ever got into the role of U.S. companies in doing business with the Germans during the Second World War, or have they gotten into the U.S. and CIA recruitment of Nazis during the Cold War era? That was even out there in the New York Times, uh, I think, a couple weeks ago. It's a very powerful elite group, and everything that you're seeing is being turned on its head so that you have humanitarian intervention and basically wars of aggression are painted as popular actions to help people, and it's just not the case at all. What you have with, for instance, the UN and NATO presence in Kosovo, you have an ethnically cleansed region where the Albanian terrorism and Albanian mafia rules the roost, and that's considered fine. You have, there are a real lot of problems in double standards and human rights. A lot of questions that have to be asked a lot of things that need to be brought up in this debate, and it has to be reframed. As long as the West claims this responsibility to protect, which is a new, a new concept since the early 2000s, Canadian Commission on International Intervention and State Sovereignty came up with this idea of the responsibility to protect, which paved the way for intervention in the affairs of less powerful states. It said that states have a duty and a responsibility to protect their own citizens from humanitarian catastrophe and from violence and killing or genocide. And if they don't do that, then the international community could intervene either through the UN or if that fails through the other states. Well, one avoidable catastrophe is the economics, all the neoliberal economic policies that are crippling countries. But they're not going to change that because that doesn't work with the current global system. And if we look at the way power is distributed, the way things are going we'll see that, in fact, it's just going to be another pretext to intervene and have the more powerful states take over or cite their responsibility to protect, to take out groups or leaders that they don't like. It's not about human rights. It's about interests. Keith mentioned, for instance, oil, gum Arabic, and other places. It's about geostrategic objectives, the expansion of NATO. I will have to wrap this up by saying that we need to expose the actions of the powerful and debate on honest terms just to see and talk about what's really going on. 
You've been listening to Dimitri Oram, writer and researcher on war crimes and the politics of genocide. Today's show, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, part two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The last speaker is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Massachusetts, Enoch Page. I really want to appreciate the fact that this is happening, and I respect what everyone on the panel has had to say. As an anthropologist, the kind of work that I do is a little bit different uh, than my colleague and Dr. Fratkin. I look at race. I look at race and how race has been turned into racism. Everybody in the United States has been extremely badly educated about the problem of race and racism. Extremely. Uh, And so if you can just hold that thought and entertain the possibility that what I want to say to you might be true, I would encourage you to really think about how this particular phenomenon might fit into a larger pattern that at one point was a Western pattern, but that it increasingly is becoming a global pattern. And in order to think about it, you have to recognize that racism is a cultural construct. When we talk about people being black or white, we're not really talking about their phenotype. So when you hear me say things like white privilege, please don't get nervous because I'm not casting any blame on anyone, particularly anyone in this room, because you must be friends if you came here today to be educated about this problem. I do not see you as an enemy. However, you and I both need to think about how you and I both benefit from white privilege. Right? If you and I both can think about how we all as Americans benefit from white privilege, then the first thing that you have to ask yourself is how white privilege is primarily responsible for global warming. That is exactly the point that Al Gore has made in his recent film, An Inconvenient Truth, that I urge you to see if you haven't seen it yet. He is demonstrating that the energy consumption footprint of this country is exponentially larger of any other country on earth, and it always has been. It is only now starting to be threatened by the ascendancy of the third world nations who so far have been held back. But because they're no longer directly oppressed as they once were by colonial governments, they are now engaging in a process that we encourage because we want to make money off of them called development. And that process turns them into citizens slash consumers, and that is a product of what we call democracy. Democracy is a process that is designed to allow a certain amount of public discourse to occur so that people will be happy consumers slash citizens. It is designed to encourage and propagate their buying and selling more than it is their voting and thinking. The more that you buy and sell, the better citizen you're considered to be by your leaders. So if you can hold that in mind, then what I'm suggesting to you is that not everybody gets to be a citizen at the same time, right? People who are identified, who learn to identify as white in this country were allowed to be citizens first, and not all of them, only some of them. Eventually, some female people like that got to be citizens. Eventually, some poor people like that got to be citizens. 
So who gets to be a citizen in a Western democracy is a processual experience. And in order to justify or rationalize the process, you create these gender, class, and race indexes. And you start marking people. And you use this system of marking people to determine, okay, who are we going to let into the door uh, today? Who are we going to allow to consume more today? Who are we going to allow to get paid so that they can afford consumption? When you think about it in this terms, you understand that the whole idea of Darfur being linked to Western business is not just so that individual people can personally prosper. That is certainly true. There are profits to be gained for individual people who own these companies. But it's also true that their progress and their prosperity becomes American prosperity. And it becomes Canadian prosperity. And it becomes British prosperity and French prosperity, etc. It even becomes Australian and New Zealand prosperity. So we need to recognize that the richer nations on the planet are the whitest nations on the planet. That's what white privilege is. It's not just because white people are smarter. It actually is because we dominate people more effectively than other people. It's, and we dominate them more effectively because we're willing to kill more people than many people in the past have been willing to do. We have the technology that we develop in order to be able to do it as efficiently as possible. And because we've become increasingly civilized, we want to make sure that our technology can kill at a much more distant way. We don't want to get our hands bloody. If we can't send a smart bomb to do it for us, then we'll send somebody black to do it for us. So just think about that, right? It's important, uh, as was pointed out by Sarah Flander in her flyer that I really hope you read, that US imperialism replaced the European colonial powers. And yet, when I talk to scholars who understand the whole concept of uh, social change, uh, political power, uh, diplomacy, foreign relations, they have a tendency to want to talk about imperialism as if it has nothing to do with racism. They want to talk about imperialism as if it's a governmental, corporate, business procedure, and they want to leave racism out of it. And I want to say that for 500 years, there hasn't been a dominant form of imperialism that wasn't racist in a Western sense. It just hasn't happened. That's a fact, that's a truth, that's a reality. But we are not conditioned to face that. We are actually conditioned to think just the opposite, that it has nothing to do with racism. Well, if it has nothing to do with racism, then why is it that during the Durban Conference on Racism a few years ago, why is it that President Bush forbade Colin Powell to go there and to address the assembly on the fact that Israel was being criticized for being racist against Palestinians, right? How many people had heard about that? Anybody? Most people didn't hear about it because they didn't want you to hear about it, right? Colin Powell was forbidden. Bush said you can go, but don't touch that issue. If the black people are there, because you're black, try to get you involved in it, you need to walk out. And that's exactly what he did. So I want you to recognize that 
George Bush knows how important it is for people of color to be able to talk about the relationship between imperialism and racism. He knows how very important it is to be able to theorize the way in which these political dominations of Afghanistan, of Iraq, of Darfur, are racist projects. They're not just imperial projects. They are projects that are designed to make sure that in an era of global warming, the Western world maintains control. It's to make sure that your and my standard of life as Westerners doesn't slip so that we make sure that we get all the resources that we need so that nobody comes over here to take over us. And I don't want anybody taking over us either, but I don't necessarily want white privilege to prevent that from happening. I'm willing to give up white privilege and let the chips fall where they may. But when I utilize white privilege to make sure that I stay on top, I am perpetuating a process of domination that is predicated on racializing everyone on the planet. And when I'm doing that, I'm allowing my resources, such as my control over religion, or my control over education, or my control over the media, to perpetuate the kind of stereotypes that make it possible for me to think that these savage blacks in Africa don't know how to govern themselves. It's just a tribal problem. Oh my goodness, what can we do? The white man's burden is to save them from themselves. These are racial narratives that are designed very intentionally to fool the population because somebody knows that you really do care. So if you, if you tell you the truth, then you might stop them. But if you tell them stereotypes, then you won't do anything about that. Because the stereotypes justify the actions that you're seeing. And the stereotypes also make it seem rational for you to call for an intervention and to kind of circle the wagons and send George Bush over to Sudan so he can grab their oil like he just grabbed Iraq's oil. And, it, and we know that it's not really about the oil. We know that it's about making sure that the currency for which oil is traded is traded only in U.S. dollars. Because the moment that Cesar Chavez down in Venezuela or anybody else decides that they no longer want to trade for oil in U.S. dollars, our dollar will crash. They know this. So these wars then become necessary. They become necessary as a way of covering up the fact that we caused global warming in the first place. And then it also becomes necessary to make it appear as if, well, we're not really doing anything but trying to help these people, when in fact, as has been pointed out, we're actually causing their troubles in our own interests. Now, remember that even in Rwanda, it was the Belgium colonials who taught in schools and churches the Tutsis to hate the Hutus. They were told that your noses are long and thin. Their noses are fat and broad. Racial coding. So you even have racism operating in a situation where blacks are slaughtering blacks. You have blacks slaughtering blacks on the streets of America today. 
And white racial power is very much the cause of it in many, many, many dimensions. But the most obvious one is the fact that some white people, I don't know who, got extremely wealthy one day when they decided that they wanted to create crack cocaine and put it in the black neighborhoods and take the money from it and go ahead and buy some arms and then sell those arms to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua so that we can have a regime change. Right? That's, you think I'm making that up? How many people have heard of that before? Good. I'm not making it up, am I? And we know that the courageous white man, the courageous white man who cracked that story, who worked for the San Jose Mercury News, lost his job because he told that truth and let it out. Why? Because George Bush's daddy was in charge of the process when he was in the head of the CIA. Right? So we're talking about the Bush family being directly responsible for the crack epidemic that's going on in our country that's caused a tremendous outbreak of black-on-black -black crime in the urban neighborhoods that's no different than what's going on in Darfur. All manipulated by a white puppet master. So I just want you to think about that and I want to remind you that it was in 1948 that the definition of genocide was written by the UN. And uh, it was in 1951 that a black American by the name of William Sullivan actually put together a petition to charge the United States with genocide. And I just want to tell you quickly that here are the parameters that defines genocide. Killing members of the group causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group those conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, all of those things have been done to African Americans and Native Americans, and all except two of those things are happening in Darfur. And yet, I have to wrap up. Before I came here today, I went to Lexus, Nexus Academic, and I reviewed 750 articles. These are articles of North America and Canada, which also included some news about Britain, and it was very interesting to see how the headlines fly by every day. First, it was just 20,000 people who were dead. Then it was 30,000. Then it was 50,000. Then it was never 60, 70, 80. It was 100,000. And then it was 150. And then it was 1.4 million refugees. And then it, finally it was 200,000 people dead. And yet, Every now and then, a little headline would be floated saying, well, is it really genocide? Colin Powell was sent to Darfur to find out, and when he interviewed people, he said racial comments were being used towards us. In the same way that in the ghetto, the black gangbanger calls the person that he's getting ready to shoot, nigga. You've been listening to Enoch Page, 
associate professor of anthropology at the University of Massachusetts and expert on race theory and the anthropology of genocide. Today's show, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, part two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We conclude part two with a panel discussion among all five speakers, beginning with Elliot Fratkin, chair of the anthropology department at Smith College. He is followed by independent investigative journalist Keith Harmon Snow and anthropology professor Enoch Page. Of course, I really appreciated the remarks from Sudan because that was essentially what I was arguing for, that um, we really try to understand these situations from the player's point of view, and particularly the people in Darfur. I certainly agree with a lot that was said tonight about U.S. interests in oil. I think Darfur, in a way, distracts from Iraq and takes students particularly away from thinking about Iraq. There's no national movement on campus to stop the war in Iraq, but there's national movements around Darfur. I support those movements around Darfur, but I think there, there is something to what the other panelists were saying. But it, the main thing is Africans aren't passive. I mean, these aren't just pawns that are being tossed this way and that. You know, when you describe the Tutsi were acting in the U.S. interest, yes, they were acting in the U.S. interest, but they weren't acting for the U.S. interest. They were acting for their own interest. You know, and the Tutsi have their own history, and Kagame was raised in Uganda as a refugee and has all his family stories of people who were massacred. And personally, I think, you know, they are dictatorial now, but the RPF did stop the genocide. And if the UN troops were there with guns, they would have stopped the genocide too. When I was in Eritrea, uh, the UN had a large force between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and that basically prevented the war. And I know from Congo, and people work in the Congo, that just having one jeep in the area stops people from killing each other. So, so this kind of intervention is very important. It doesn't refute what people have said about other interests being served, but it's, it says for us what kind of humanitarian aid we should support. Uh, should humanitarian organizations pull out, that would be a great tragedy. There's no government doing what those humanitarian organizations are doing. You can put down CARE, but CARE is one of the 10 largest you know, donors in the world who act like governments, because governments aren't acting like governments. The United Nations isn't doing anything. The United States declares genocide, Colin Powell calls it genocide, which obligates them to intervene. You know, it obligates them to intervene. It obligates the United Nations if you declare genocide. But nobody did. So that's just a word. In that sense, I agree with what Brother Enoch was saying. Um, I'm going to leave it there. There's other points people want to make. But um, why not save Darfur.org? Um, you know, I, I do look at that site. My main list was from, actually, the UN High Commission for Refugees and their list of organizations. Safe Darfur, I believe, is a United States-based organization, and they also act as a clearinghouse. I know they're active in the, in the Stop Darfur campaign, but my list is from, from the UNHCR. Thank you. UNHCR is one of the worst humanitarian organizations on the planet. In Ogoni, when I interviewed refugees there, the UNHCR was working with Shell Oil Company. The Ogoni refugees' number one enemy is Shell Oil Company. They were helping to massacre the Ogoni people. UNHCR in southern Ethiopia, even the UNICEF group that I worked for says, we can't talk to UNHCR, don't go near them. They work with the government, they're spies, they're killing people. This is what the UNICEF told me. 
It's all over the place. UNHCR is the worst. It's a big business. They're serving big business interests. CARE as well. They may be the biggest, best, and um, like a government, well, I think that's the problem. This is managed inequality. Managed inequality. It's always going to be unequal. It's always going to be like this. We can send in a few NATO troops or humanitarian, whatever we want to call them, but this is managed inequality. It's not getting to the root of the problem. Radical means going to the root. There is no radical discussion of the problem in Darfur besides what, as far as I'm concerned, what you've seen here today. Now, I have attended panels at Smith on Darfur since at least four years ago and was not allowed to discuss the issues that we're raising today. And I think you know that very well. In fact, if you look at my 93-page report on genocide in Ethiopia, you will see it's based on people's testimony. Hours and hours and hours on the ground where people are being shot, raped, and killed all around us. It's 93 pages. You know what happened to it? It's in the UN. It's not being released. The genocide in Ethiopia is going on. If I speak up, I'll never get another job. That's the problem. That's the problem in Darfur. I'm a totally in favor of hearing from the people. It's the same thing Elliot said. It's the autonomy of the local people. If we're interested in local people's autonomy, why aren't the Sudanese people being heard? From all sides, from the south, from the north, everything. I'm in totally inclusive democracy. But we also have to talk about the CIA and these incredibly powerful forces at work. Two million people dying and being raped in humanitarian camps. The number of people dead in the Congo since 1996 is exceeding six or seven million. The international crisis group who goes in and creates the statistics, they say three or four million. People on the ground in Congo say 10 million. The numbers game. That's a big issue. Hollywood is all over this. This is structural violence. It's the nature of the system to maintain this white privilege. White privilege is a great is a great term for it. What should we do about this? I'm totally into talking about and hearing from the Sudanese people. I would love to go and do that with a team of people to go in and do an open fact-finding mission. But the fact is, it's, it's kind of late to be talking about fact-finding missing when people are dying like this. But the same thing's going on in Congo. Same thing's going on in Haiti. Same thing's going on in northern Uganda. So how do we address it? We asked, with the previous letter to the group that held the previous event, we asked for them to hold a public hearing where these issues would be raised. There's a small group of people here who can work together to fan this out and create something that can get some attention and the proper position can be taken. Hollywood, as I said, is all over this. To send in George Clooney, Mia Farrow, and Angelina Jolie. George Clooney has a multi-billion dollar project in Las Vegas where he's going to have a striptease bar in every single room. He's not the person that should be going in there. The Pentagon is all over Hollywood. Hotel Rwanda was a complete sham. The Tutsis served their interest, and that means if they need to kill a fellow Tutsi, they did. They killed them all over the place. The Tutsis did most of the killing in Rwanda. The whole thing about, as Enoch made out, the genocide, the whole issue of what is a genocide. If we start opening up that can of worms, then you have to go back to Nuremberg. Because under those three programs, Project Paperclip and Operation Sunshine and Project 63, the worst Nazis were brought into the U.S. military establishment, including NASA. NASA has huge programs over Darfur now, producing these incredible maps that don't look like that. And it's for USAID. They know exactly what's where. The minerals, the raw materials, the villages that have been burned. But we don't know who burned those villages. I've worked on this stuff in many places in Africa. 
I don't know who's killing those people. It's wrong, but I'm not going to accept that it's, that it's what we're being told. And what we should do is not what we're being told either, because as I said, 10 years from now, it's going to be the same story. Two years from now. In Congo, the Monuk forces. Monuk is the UN observer's mission in Congo. Without the Monuk forces, it would be far worse than it is. That's ugly. I mean, I have some good friends who work for Monuk, dedicated people working in the United Nations. Good people working all over the place for care and Doctors Without Borders. One of my closest friends resigned from Doctors Without Borders in Congo because they were doing more damage than they were good. She can't talk about that. Monuk is killing people who are standing up for their local autonomy because some big mining company over there that's close to Monuk in Congo doesn't want them to stand up for the rights for that gold. Monuk is the UN observer's mission in Congo. So the United Nations in Haiti and in, in Congo has terrible agenda that's not necessarily... And William Swing, the guy that's head of the Monuk mission in Congo, he went through the Zaire before we took out Mobutu. And by the way, from Rwanda and Uganda, we marched across the country using those, government, those armies and took out the government of Congo in 1997. But anyway, things we can do include getting Mayor Claire Higgins to hold a big meeting to talk about this and expand this dialogue. Is any newspaper here? Is the advocate here? And if you want to talk about global warming, you've got to ask, why does the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, why do they have two bills right now that allow the U.S. to do environmental modification? It's not about global warming. Look who made that movie with Al Gore. He's interested in nuclear power. He just wants to be president. We're just being lied to over and over and over. Well, um, if I was not a university professor teaching classes every semester about the way in which the world operates, the way in which people on the ground who are trying to make culture can't hardly do it because of the ways in which they're being exploited and dominated, then I wouldn't be able to connect the dots either. Right? It's only because I read so many cases, semester after semester, that I start seeing things so that now when I watch the news, I know instantly but before I started doing this kind of work, I didn't know either. So as a preface, we need to be better educated, but we're never going to be better educated until we demand it. And we're not demanding it. We keep missing opportunities to make demands that are really in our interests, and then we keep demanding UN intervention into Darfur as if that's going to solve the problem. What I'm hearing people say is that the problems are everywhere on the planet because our fingers are everywhere. And it's not just the United States, it's other countries too, but mainly Western ones. So, if that's the issue, any particular intervention is just going to be a redundant process that you do over and over and over again. It's never going to solve the problem. That's what I mean when I say we got to start thinking out of the box. Right? I believe that if we're going to ever become a true nation, if we're really going to give real humanitarian aid, if the UN interventions are going to be effective, here are some things we're going to have to do. First of all, we have to recognize that ever since the We Charge Genocide petition was submitted to the UN in 1951 saying that African Americans have suffered genocide in the United States, ever since then, the UN has never really been the friend of the world. Because the United States cripples the UN and controls it and manipulates it. 
We need to understand that. That it has never been allowed to operate as it should be a truly representative world governing body. But we have the delusion that it has. We need to recognize that if we want to change that situation, that we as citizens have to operate differently. For example, I think that we really need to call for a law that prevents corporations from having the rights of persons. Now, of course, that would probably be a continuing endless battle, but as activists, we've got to stop chasing this and that small path and consolidate our efforts around two or three key issues. That would be where I would start. The next thing that I would do is that I would say humanitarian aid has to start with changing how the United States views itself as a world actor. Right? We have to stop seeing ourselves as the global police and start seeing ourselves as making ourselves into a more acceptable global friend. And that means that we have to change from within. How can we say that we're going to stop dominating people through foreign policy when we are allowing domination to occur in this nation? Right? One of the principal factors of genocide as I read in a research report recently put out by the Center for the Study of Genocide, is that camps are set up, right? You start rounding people up, as was happened in Nazi Germany, and you start putting them in camps. And you're doing that because you're telling yourself, well, we're not really going to kill them. And you're also telling the public that. But you know you're going to kill them. You just don't know when, right? So you're trying to build up the nerve to do it, maybe, But in the meantime, you want to see how you can study them and exploit them. So camps become a necessary strategy in making sure that you have a controlled labor force and also that you have controlled research subjects. Well, prisons work the same way, right? The number of black and Latino and Asian youth who have entered into the prisons since 1980 when the Reagan revolution began would spin your head. The numbers have skyrocketed exponentially, and we have been silent as a nation about it. We have not said no to that. So we have to change how we treat each other in this nation if we're going to ever model how other people should really treat each other. And we don't need to call it democracy. We need to call it humanity. Right? We're not there. We have to be able to eradicate and dismantle white privilege, and every person in the nation has to join that project. I'm not talking about one of these kumbaya white privilege conferences that are organized to make white anti-racist activists feel good about themselves. I'm talking about a serious, radical redistribution of the wealth, not just from whites to non-whites in this country, but from the north to the south. We have to begin to live in a way that is just. But right now, our kids don't even know what justice means. All they know is, I'm the killer. And they're learning that from the video games that they're playing. They're learning how to be killers and predators. And as they develop a predatory consciousness from playing these video games, they're going to be very much in favor of any war action that we take. Because they're learning through these games that in order for them to do well and thrive and get their brownie points, they have to kill somebody. 
There are many things that we need to do to clean our own house, and we're not doing it. So that's how we need to behave if we want to create a humanitarian country and have true humanitarian aid where we're really truly helping people because we've learned how to help them by helping ourselves. We're not doing it right now. You've been listening to Associate Professor of Anthropology, Enoch Page. He was preceded by human rights and genocide investigator in Africa, Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, part two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The panel discussion concludes with writer and researcher on war crimes, Dimitri Oram, followed by co-director of the New York International Action Center, Sarah Flounders. Actually, something that's interesting, Genocide Watch, which is a human rights group, they claimed that the uh, Sandinista army committed genocide against the Contra force, just to show how that term is abused, has been abused recently. Also with the UN in Rwanda, Keith wanted me to mention this too, that um, Romeo Dallier, who's the head chief, played a key role in closing off one of the, um, the ways to the airport and, and thus was involved in shooting down the plane, I think. And I don't mean to say that people aren't actors in their own destiny, but I think we have to acknowledge the outside forces and U.S. and the other imperial powers being some of the strongest ones. And I would dispute the... Uh, that the RPF stopped the genocide. If they wanted to do that, they could have, and there are RPF defectors that say that that was not in their interest at all. That they knew this was going to happen when they shot the plane down. This was going to spark this off, and they did it anyways. And in blocking and lobbying against the UN mission, too, I mean, that they were just interested in control. And they knew by that point, too, that it was bloody and it was going to continue being bad, and they didn't care. I wanted to pick up on a point that Enoch Page raised that was so important about racial narratives and stereotyping because really today U.S. wars are justified by a whole demonization of an entire people that reaches such a level that it becomes almost impossible in public discourse to defend or even suggest that a people have any right to sovereignty, to self-determination, to live to eat. The demonization of the Iraqi people, of the Palestinian people, or the people of Iran, where there's actual discussion of whether to carry out a nuclear war against Iran or Korea. And of course it was earlier done on Vietnam and we could go on and on. And another a point that I thought that was very important also that Enoch raises, it really comes from this, is that in terms of looking at the role of the UN, that it is the US who has crippled and controlled the UN. This document, We Charge Genocide, that was introduced, taken to the, to the UN and demand, you know, it should be taught in schools. This document shouldn't be allowed to, to die, and it has. And it should be read and studied because it was an appeal to the UN to look at the conditions, the systematic destruction of the African-American people as a people and that role in U.S. history and today. And you couldn't have a discussion of genocide without looking at that because unless we look at U.S. history, unless we look at what 
the U.S. government role has been systematically, then it's not really an objective discussion. And you can't have a situation today where a third of all young black men go to prison. That's not genocide. That's not the systematic destruction or where the life expectancy of black men in the U.S. today is lower than Bangladesh. Now, if we're going to look at and use terms like genocide, then we got to look at what's going on here at home today, where today still the systematic destruction of Native American people continues. It's U.S. policy. Now, I also just wanted to make a point about the African role in the anti-colonial movements, which was absolutely heroic. The 1950s saw, why did the British and the Belgians and the French and the Portuguese leave Africa? Was it out of any humanitarian interest? Not, not even by this much. They were absolutely driven out by mass movements, general strikes, armed struggles, guerrilla warfare. Every form of resistance was used, and Africa to this day is being punished for that resistance. That's what's going on. It's a continuation of the anti-colonial resistance that was shown, and U.S. intervention, and British, and French, and all of Western intervention, who controls the U.N., is part of that attempt to reconquer, recolonize Africa today. Now, that, I think, leads to one other point, and that is on the UN role. Is it possible for the UN to have a progressive role? Now, there is the aspiration that the United Nations represents that the people of the world could, in common cause, in a general assembly, come and defend their interests and protect. But that's not the way the UN functions. Just, just to look at the experience of the UN forces in Haiti, which we're not even really taking up today, or in the Korean War, that was carried out under UN flag. Four million Koreans died in that war. We could look at the UN role in the Congo today and in the 1960s and on through. But I think the role that is so familiar to everyone here is in Iraq. The 1991 bombing, which systematically was carried out, the bombers were US bombers, but that was under UN flag. And every water purification, sanitation, sewage, and food processing plant in the country was targeted. We can't forget that. That was not accidental. The sanctions that took place for 13 years that killed a million and a half people were carried out by the United Nations at U.S. demand and insistence, yes. Is the whole world responsible for this? No. But those were carried out by the United Nations. And the U.N. humanitarian organizations went in to measure the number who died. It was UNICEF reports and World Food Organization and the World Health Organization who came up with the figures of one and a half million, more than half a million children under the age of five who died from UN-imposed sanctions. So this is the reality. It sounds very good to say, well, the UN should come in and help the people of Sudan. And isn't that better than the US? 
but actually it is the same thing and it has been the same thing again and again. So we have to look, I think, always at the role of our own government while keeping in mind that this is not our government. It is today in the US we have a plutocracy, a role, a control by the very richest Less than one half of one percent, 200 billionaires that control and own more than two billion people. These are the figures and they control our lives too. They shape our, the way that we look at political issues. And when we stand up to that and resist the racist demonization, when we resist the justification for new wars, we really play a role in humanizing ourselves and our children. And we give enormous inspiration. The fact that there is a movement against war, against colonization, against US domination in this country, people around the world, that, that ex excites and it moves them and it gives them hope. Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, was sponsored by the Northampton Committee to End the War in Iraq, the Trap Rock Peace Center, the International Action Center, and Touchstone Farm. Audio, courtesy of Charles Jenks of the Trap Rock Peace Center. Visit their website at traprockpeace.org. Sarah Flounders of the International Action Center can be contacted at iacenter.org. The website for Keith Harmon Snow is allthingspass.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself. <laughs>